Hello and welcome to this episode of the Macbeth Monologues. Today we're going to be thinking about the theme of the supernatural in Macbeth. Director Peter Hall said of Macbeth, It is the most thoroughgoing study of evil that I know in dramatic literature. Evil in every sense. Cosmic sickness, personal sickness, personal neurosis, the consequence of sin, the experience of sin, blood leading to more blood, an unblinking look at the nature of evil in the person and in the state and in the cosmos. There is certainly a great deal of personal and political evil enacted within the pages of Macbeth, but it is the cosmic sickness that Peter Hall refers to which this podcast will focus on. The idea that there are beings more evil and powerful than humankind wrecking havoc within the world for their own amusement. There is certainly a great number of references to the supernatural within the text. Although Macbeth is Shakespeare's shortest tragedy, it has the second highest number of references to dark and supernatural beings, second only to Julius Caesar. In this podcast, I'm going to consider the three most obvious supernatural references that occur throughout the text. Witches, ghosts and the devil himself. Finally, I'm going to consider whether we should take everything we see in the text as literal. Was Shakespeare really trying to tell us that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth were controlled by supernatural forces? Or are these references highlighting the darkness that exists within the human psyche? Let's find out. Macbeth opens as an explicitly supernatural text with Act 1, Scene 1, opening with the stage direction, Thunder and Lightning, Enter Three Witches. When shall we free meet again, in thunder, lightning or in rain, asks the first witch. When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, replies the second. Rather than opting for the traditional opening scene amidst the action of battle, introducing key characters such as Macbeth, Banquo, King Duncan and Macduff. Instead, Shakespeare chooses a quite unconventional opening with this supernatural scene. It sets a clear precedent for the audience that the action of this text is going to be laced with supernatural happenings and strange goings-on. Miss Noon is going to go into the characters of the witches in more detail in her own podcast, But for now, I just want to focus on the early connection that is established between Macbeth and the Weird Sisters. Once the witches have decided to meet again upon the heath, the third witch tells us they're to meet with Macbeth. This leaves the audience with a lot of questions. How do the witches know who Macbeth is? Have they identified him as a potential subject for their interference? What is the connection between brave Macbeth and these strange supernatural sisters. At the end of Act 1, Scene 1, the witches join in a chorus. They say, Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. The audience may write this comment off as the strange ramblings of a creepy trio. And perhaps they may think no more about it. Until, in Act 1, Scene 3, we are introduced to Macbeth for the first time. He turns to Banquo and says, So foul and fair a day I have not seen. 
This would surely cause the audience to ask a few more questions. Why is Macbeth using the exact same turn of phrase that the witches used just two scenes earlier? Does this linguistic link suggest an underlying connection between the characters? Following this, the witches greet Macbeth with the famous greetings. All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Glams. All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. All hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter. It is these greetings that set off a chain of events that lead to bloodshed, butchery and barbarism. Although Macbeth is initially distrustful and fearful of the witches, as would be expected in the Jacobean time, soon his tone changes. Stay, you imperfect speakers, he implores them. Tell me more. Later, he says, say from whence you owe this strange intelligence, or why upon this blasted heath you stop our way with such prophetic greeting. Speak, I charge you. Rather than being afraid, Macbeth is intrigued, curious. He wants to know how the witches gain their power and what impact their prophecies may have on him. Instead of shunning the supernatural connection, as would be expected, here he appears to be encouraging it. In fact, when the witches do eventually vanish, Macbeth says to Banquo, would they had stayed, meaning he wishes that they had stayed to speak for longer. Shortly afterwards, Banquo and Macbeth are joined by Angus and Ross, who immediately announce that Macbeth has been made the Thane of Cawdor. Suddenly, the witch's prophecies, which seemed ethereal and transient, actually become material fact. So, are the witches omniscient, which means all-seeing, beings which watch over the human world and observe the goings-on? Or, is it more than that? Are they omnipotent, which means all-powerful? Do they actually control the action in the human world? Shakespeare leaves us guessing, but it's certainly a question worth considering. Following this announcement, Macbeth goes from fear to curiosity and now to unbridled excitement. He says, Glams and Thane of Cawdor, the greatest is behind, which means the best part of the prophecy is still yet to come. So not only is Macbeth delighted to have been made Thane of Cawdor, just like the witches said he would be, he's now looking forward to moving on to becoming king. He has put all of his faith in the things that the witches told him, which shows the strengthening connection between Macbeth and the feared supernatural world. Macbeth summarises his conflicted state of mind towards the end of Act 1, Scene 3. He says, This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. What he means there is that although he knows he is benefiting, at the moment, from his liaison with the supernatural world, he knows ultimately that it is where darkness lies and that it will not be positive in the long run. Macbeth's connection with the supernatural world continues to strengthen in Act 2, Scene 1. Banquo tells him, I dreamt last night of the three weird sisters. To you, they have showed some truth. What he means is that he had a dream about the witches because of the things that happened to Macbeth. But Macbeth tells him, I think not of them, as though they're not playing on his mind. We, the audience, know this to be a lie, Macbeth is fixated on the prophecies the witches have told him. So he's hiding his connection to the supernatural world from his best friend. This suggests that he knows his faith in the witches is wrong and he wants to conceal it from the people around him. One of the most famous supernatural instances in the text comes shortly after this also in Act 2, Scene 1. 
It's the famous dagger speech, which hopefully you should be familiar with. Macbeth says, Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle towards my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Subject of much debate is whether Shakespeare intended this supernatural element to be taken literally, or whether it's merely a representation of Macbeth's own personal sickness, neuroses and evil. Some directors will show audiences the bloody dagger, for example, implying that it is an elusive vision planted there by the witches or a similar demonic power to lead Macbeth towards his brutal murder of Duncan. However, most will leave the air in front of Macbeth's outstretched hand purposefully empty, suggesting instead that the dagger is Macbeth's own false creation, stemming from his turbulent thoughts of ambition and violence. He admits himself later in this soliloquy that he thinks the dagger or the idea of the dagger may be proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain. This suggests that the stress and turbulence of the last few days has played havoc with his mental health. So, what do you think? Is the dagger a real supernatural vision planted by the witches to force Macbeth to take the next move towards his rise to power? Or is it simply a manifestation of his own mental health struggles and the ambition that is taking over his mind. But it is a later segment of the same soliloquy that really demonstrates Macbeth's relationship to the supernatural world. When I think about nightfall, I think about the sun going down, the moon being visible and people sleeping. But what does Macbeth think of? Well, he says, Now over the one half world, nature seems dead and wicked dreams abuse the curtained sleep. Witchcraft celebrates pale Ecate's offerings, and withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel the wolf, who howls his watch, thus with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides, towards his design moves like a ghost. Here we really see that Macbeth is beginning to have dark, demonic, supernatural thoughts. He talks of nature dying, nightmares, witchcraft, even mentioning by name Ecate, the goddess of all witchcraft. He also talks about ghosts and personifies murder as an old man he calls Withered Murder and describes him walking with his wolf companion, an animal often linked to the supernatural world in folklore and mythology. Talking of ghosts, when discussing the supernatural occurrences in Macbeth, who can forget the appearance of the ghost of Banquo in Act 3, Scene 4? Now, this is one time that Shakespeare does help us out with stage directions. It clearly says in the text, enter the ghost of Banquo and sits in Macbeth's place. So we know that this is not a vision. It's not a manifestation of Macbeth's mental illness. This is something that is really happening. Existence of ghosts would have been hotly debated in the Jacobean era. But, if you were Catholic, you would have believed in the concept of purgatory, the idea that your soul cannot go to either heaven or hell and is trapped somewhere in between if you have unfinished business on earth. Banquo's unfinished business is obvious. His best friend hired assassins to take him out of the picture and brutally murder him, so it makes sense that his soul would not be able to rest and could come back in the form of a ghost to torment Macbeth and remind him of his guilt and the consequences of his actions. 
Although Protestants did not believe in the concept of purgatory, even some of them would have believed in ghosts and other supernatural occurrences. Although the audience will have been aware all along that the witch's interest is in their own pleasure rather than Macbeth's success, he seems to believe that they're out for his good. This will therefore be the first time that he's seeing the darker side of the supernatural world. He's being tormented by this ghost, almost mocking him, reminding him that although at the moment he's on top of the world, soon it's going to come crashing down. Macbeth, in panic, turns to his lords and asks, which of you have done this? Clearly hoping that the ghost of Banquo can be explained away as a prank or trick. But then Macbeth realises what he's seeing is real. He turns to the ghost and he says, Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. From this description and the use of the word gory, we begin to be able to picture this ghost as a terrifying spectre. And that's how most directors portray him too. Typically, the ghost of Banquo is drenched in blood. And Macbeth, understandably, is terrified, to the point that Lady Macbeth has to make up an excuse, describing the episode as a fit. She asks Macbeth, Are you a man? Suggesting that his breakdown is the result of his fragility. But he replies, I, and a bold one, that dare look on that which might appall the devil. This suggests that what he has just seen is so horrifying considers it to be a hellish, demonic experience. Talking of the devil, did you know that he is mentioned in ten separate lines across the text of Macbeth? Two notable occurrences come in Act 4, Scene 3, in a conversation between Macduff and Malcolm. Macduff says, not in the legions of horrid hell can come a devil more damned in evils to top Macbeth. And similarly, Malcolm says, devilish Macbeth, by many of these trains have sought to win me into his power. This theme continues in Lady Macbeth's famous soliloquy from Act 5, Scene 1. Not only does she have the haunting vision of blood soaking her own hands, which she can never scrub off, but she says herself, hell is murky. This suggests that she understands that the way that her and Macbeth has behaved is going to land them in hell, if they're not already there. This idea is strengthened in Act 5, Scene 3, when we find that Macbeth is alone with his attendant, Satan. Now the spelling is different, S-E-Y-T-O-N, rather than S-A-T-A-N, but the link seems to be clear. Can it be a mere coincidence that the one person Macbeth has left to turn to as his castle is being stormed has a name which sounds exactly like the name given to the devil? It seems unlikely to me. This demonic identity is solidified in Act 5, Scene 7. Young Seward says, Thou callst thyself a hotter name than any is in hell. When Macbeth tells him who he is, Young Seward replies, The devil himself could not pronounce a title more hateful to mine ear. And Macbeth answers, no, nor more fearful. This suggests he's embracing his identity, claiming to be more frightening than the devil himself. And what of the witches that all this supernatural soliciting started with? Well, you should know that we meet them again in Act 4, Scene 1. They're stood around a cauldron, throwing in all sorts of strange ingredients to make some sort of potion. The second witch says, fill it of a fenny snake, in the cauldron boil and bake. 
eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and a blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing. So, it doesn't sound particularly pleasant. Anyway, shortly after they finish that, Macbeth comes to them looking for answers. He says, I conjure you by that which you profess, which essentially means I implore you to speak and I'm using references to the dark and supernatural things that you believe in order to do so. Much like somebody might use the Bible to demonstrate how truthful they are being in court, Macbeth is using dark, demonic, spiritual references to strengthen his connection with the witches and get what he wants from them. He goes on to say, Though you untie the winds and let them fight against the churches, though the yeasty waves confound and swallow navigation up, though bladed corn be lodged and trees blown down, though castles topple on their warders' heads, though palaces and pyramids do slope their heads to the foundations, though the treasure of nature's Germans tumble altogether, even till destruction sicken, answer me to what I ask you. Which essentially means, I don't care what you do. Sailors could drown in waves, trees and crops could be flattened, pyramids, palaces and castles could collapse, and, perhaps most notably, the wind could blow down churches. Macbeth is saying here that the only thing he cares about is getting the information that he wants from the witches, thereby strengthening their relationship, even if representations of humanity and, most notably, Christianity, collapse. This demonstrates that Macbeth has completely abandoned the normal, natural world in favour of strengthening his relationship with the supernatural one. However, this is a connection that he tries to distance himself from towards the end of the play, when he knows that his loss of power, and indeed life, is imminent. In Act 5, Scene 5, he says, The equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth, referring to the witches as fiends, a kind of devilish, demonic creature. And again, in Act 5, Scene 8, when Macbeth promises Macduff he will never again believe these juggling fiends. But it's too late. Everybody knows who Macbeth is and what he's done. He cannot redeem himself now. And in fact, it is the same word, fiend, that is used to describe Macbeth and Lady Macbeth by the other characters in the later acts of the play. In Act 4, Scene 3, Macduff calls him this fiend of Scotland. And in Act 5, Scene 8, in the last speech of the play, Malcolm refers to Macbeth and Lady Macbeth as this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. So, that's the story of Macbeth's relationship with the supernatural world. From fearful, to curious and conflicted, to a fully-fledged member of something very dark and demonic. And of course, we're left with some questions. Was everything that happened to be taken literally? Did Macbeth really meet the witches, really see the ghosts, really witness those harrowing visions? Or was Shakespeare trying to tell us something about guilt and ambition and the way that these emotions can wreak havoc with our minds and change our perceptions? We'll never know, but it's certainly something interesting to contemplate.